This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department should start planning now for another crisis event that forces remote work, according to the DOD Office of Inspector General. That office says the department should think about changing telework plans and the resources employees need to work remotely full-time. FCW reports the IG office found complaints about remote work dropped by almost half between the beginning of the pandemic last March and the IG's survey in August. U.S. Cyber Command will grow its tool to share information with the intelligence community and private sector partners. A new Cyber Command request for information asks for industry to help expand the data flow requests for its Wolf Door tool. Defense News reports responses to the RFI should be in by April 23rd. DOD's Cyber Compliance Program will launch an advisory council to work with contractors trying to navigate the process. CMMC Accreditation Body Chairman Carlton Johnson says the advisory council will take feedback from vendors who want the certification. FCW reports Johnson says the council will make recommendations for the program too. The ship that was blocking the Suez Canal has been free for about a week now, but the incident is making people all over the world think again about supply chain resilience. Admiral Jamie Fogo, U.S. Navy retired, is a distinguished fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. He's former commander of U.S. Naval Forces Europe and Africa. Jamie, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You wrote on LinkedIn recently about the fragility of the supply chain. What is the implication for the military specifically on that fragility? Well, Francis, thanks so much for inviting me on the show. It's great to be with you again. And uh, you're right. I did uh, express my concerns uh, on a recent uh, opinion piece uh, about the crisis in the Suez Canal with the blocking of the canal by the big ship uh, ever given. Uh, of course, the canal is used for uh, about 13 percent of uh, global maritime traffic and carries about 10% uh, of our seaborne oil traffic. But there are a lot of military ships going both ways through that canal. I sat in uh, my headquarters in Naples, Italy, and we, of course, had transit presence of expeditionary strike groups and aircraft carriers and submarines that pass through the canal. It's uh, the life's blood connection uh, between the Red Sea and uh, the Indian Ocean and uh, the Mediterranean. And so when the canal became blocked, uh, not just the military folks, but uh, civilian shippers became very concerned. And you saw the consequences of that play out over the last week. You wrote in this piece, a conventionally powered warship cannot make the transit from the Red Sea around the southern tip of Africa without a stop for fuel or provisions. What's the implication for that uh, on our partnerships and alliances all, all over the African peninsula? It strikes me that makes those alliances tremendously important if for some reason we're ever denied access to the Suez Canal, either intentionally or unintentionally. Well, Francis, you hit the nail right on the head. And uh, part of my charter uh, in Europe, uh, off and on, and in three different assignments in Naples over 10 years, was alliance and partnerships. Uh, of course, the most successful alliance in the world, the NATO alliance, but partnerships with countries outside NATO who are not NATO members. And many of those countries 
uh, reside on the African continent. And so every year we used to do uh, exercises with our African friends in East Africa, uh, Cutlass Express, North Africa, Phoenix Express, and we just concluded uh, Obengami Express. This has been going on for about 20 years now, and my successor appeared in that exercise. Well, what's important about that? Well, when something like this, a catastrophic event, a game changer happens in the Suez Canal, and uh, I'm happy that it was three and a half days and not two weeks, then you have to have a contingency plan. And those contingency plans involve partners and other navies, particularly the African Navy. So if we were to sail commercial ships around the Cape of Good Hope, uh, there would be some concerns about passing through EEZs or waters where there might be piracy or illegal activity. And uh, I'm talking about the Mozambique Channel. I'm talking about the Gulf of Guinea. Uh, you remember many years ago when there was a lot of piracy in Somalia. So this is important for all of our navies to work together to be able to uh, maintain the sea lines of communication open and free. They don't call them the global commons for nothing. They're there for the transport of 90% of our commercial goods on the water, in the maritime, over the sea. And they've got to be protected. And so it's important because our Navy can only go so far and we only have so many ships. And if we need provisions or we had a medical emergency or we needed gas, um, then we would have to stop someplace if we didn't have a replenishment ship or a refueler with us. So it's important to have access everywhere. And that's why partnerships and friendships are important. It can't surge trust. You've got to build it over time. China's Belt and Road Initiative has been focused very heavily on African building infrastructure and uh, in some cases that infrastructure is military infrastructure. Is there a worry or should there be a worry that that will have some impact on our partnerships there, our alliances, or at least a willingness to help us if we needed help at some point in time, Jamie? Well, this uh, great power competition is just that, Francis. It is a competition, a competition for hearts and minds, uh, resources and access. And so if you look at uh, the African continent in the 54 countries on the continent of Africa, there is a significant Chinese presence. So this great power competition is not just about what happens out in the Indo-Pacific. It's also what's going on in other places uh, like Africa. Um, one of the bases that uh, we had oversight of from my headquarters in Naples, Italy, uh, was down in Djibouti. It's called Camp Lemonnier. The Chinese decided that they needed a base in the Horn of Africa, so they approached the Djiboutian government and they built a uh, large facility called Dorale. And they stopped there on their way through the Suez Canal or out of the Suez Canal and uh, into the Mediterranean as they transit their commercial ships and their warships. And now uh, they're also pressurizing um, the polar region, the Arctic. And you probably saw recently with uh, President Xi's announcement of the continuation of One Belt, One Road uh, in the polar Silk Road. That causes me pause. That uh, requires a need for dialogue with like-minded individuals that can bring everybody together and ensure that those global commons remain the commons for all to use peacefully. We have uh, less than a minute left, Jamie. What would you watch, uh, uh, how would you watch the partnerships and alliances develop in the coming years on the African continent? Well, I think in the last uh, three or four years, we have maintained a great uh, partnership and friendship with our African allies uh, through a naval presence and uh, training and exercises. And I'd like to see that continue. As I said, Cutlass Express, Phoenix Express, Obengami Express brings together dozens of African countries. 
uh, I always tried to bring the South Africans in as well. Uh, we hadn't had a port visit there for about 12 years, and we put USS Kearney down in South Africa during one of the uh, lulls of COVID. And I think it was an extremely successful mission. So as we get through this pandemic, it's important uh, that we show the flag and that we have presence in order to assure access. And that goes both ways, our ports, their ports. That's the future of uh, security and safety in the maritime domain. And I'd like to see it continue, particularly on the African continent and in Europe. Admiral Fogo, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate your time today. Francis, a real pleasure. Thanks so much and happy Easter to all of you guests. Up next, comparing apples to apples in the defense budget. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what could be coming next in the defense budget and why the price tag is so high. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The White House says it'll release President Biden's top-line spending request for fiscal year 2022 soon. Some experts expect defense spending to stay flat in coming years. Dov Zakheim is senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, former Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller. He's writing about the defense budget with another former Comptroller, Elaine McCusker, in Defense News. Dov, thanks very much for coming on the program. It's good to talk to you again. Um, you and Elaine write in this piece uh, about a letter that 50 members of the House sent to President Biden March 16th comparing uh, our defense spending with the 10 countries behind the United States. And you write, this statement's misleading to the point of ir irresponsibility, completely overlooked as America's role in the world. Isn't that the crux of the discussion in the first place, Dove? Well, up to a point. I mean, if you're an isolationist, you think you're going to save money. Uh, in fact, you'd probably have to spend more money just covering all our coasts. Maybe you'd need 50 aircraft carriers, 25 on each coast to make sure nobody gets through. Um, but the real issue is uh, people say we're spending too much because these other 10 countries are spending so much less. But we have commitments around the world. We have interests around the world. We have allies around the world. That's number one. Number two is it's not at all clear to me, at least, or, or to my colleague, uh, that, in fact, uh, we are spending uh, more than even our number one competitor, which is China. And the reason is uh, China's uh, so-called published defense budget, or what they call their official budget, doesn't count a ton of things that we uh, in the United States do include in our budget. It's not transparent at all. I'll give you some examples. Uh, spending on R&D, spending on space, spending on benefits. They don't have benefits for their troops the way we do. Um, I was on a commission that uh, looked at uh, benefits for our forces and retirement benefits. And we actually published a book of several hundred pages just of benefits alone. We're so different from the Chinese in, in that regard and in so many others. My guess is they're spending nearly as much as us, maybe as much as us. And that's just one. So what about the others? Well, obviously add those on and we're not spending more than the next 10. And you and Elaine argue in this piece that's not the right way to approach this. What is the right way to approach the right amount of money that the United States should spend on defense each year, Dove? Well, I think Elaine and I both agree that you have to look at what are our commitments and responsibilities, number one. Uh, are we determined to keep those? Uh, what is the price of not keeping them, by the way? Uh, and uh, once you do that, you then look at the fact that uh, we have to have certain force levels to maintain those responsibilities. 
Um, we're not going to cut back on benefits, so we have to factor those in. Uh, we have to factor in research and development. We're talking about all these new cutting edge technologies, AI, quantum computing, and so on. We've got to spend money to research those, you've got to develop those, and then you've got to bring them into the force. We have to procure all sorts of systems in order to be viable and in order to deter the bad guys, whether it's China, Russia, Iran, Venezuela, whoever. Um, you start adding those up and you're, you're above $700 billion. Budget and strategy, though, especially in the defense realm, have been chasing each other's tails for decades in this town, Dove. How do we ever get to a point where that tail chasing stops and we determine how to either integrate budget and strategy or determine which one comes first? Well, I think the answer is, of course, that uh, the strategy has to come first. Uh, the trouble then is when you look at the strategy, then look at what might be available to you realistically, and then you may have to alter the strategy. We've avoided that for a very long time. Uh, the previous president, of course, had a strategy, get out of the Middle East. Uh, we see how well that succeeded, and God only knows if we'll have to come back even more. President Obama, the same. Uh, he wanted to get out and wound up sending more troops to Afghanistan. So uh, we have to look realistically at what this world out there is like. The enemy, as uh, Secretary of Gates, Gates said, Secretary of Defense Gates said years ago, the enemy gets a vote in this. We have to look at who's threatening us, who's threatening our friends, who's threatening our interests. And then we look at what do we need to protect against those threats? How much do we hedge? How much risk do we accept? And although it sounds like we're spending a ton of money, Certainly relative to 1.9 trillion that we just spent and 1.9 trillion that's being asked for now, it's not a ton of money. But we really have to look at, okay, what is the defense of our country, of our allies, of our interests? Uh, what's that worth? That's what you spend your money on. 30 seconds, Dove. Is the top line indicator that the Biden administration asks for the leading indicator of where they're going to go in this? Well, of course, uh, but we don't know what that top line is yet. Uh, classic combat between OMB and DOD, the Office of Management and Budget wants to cut it further back. Uh, the Defense Department uh, is just trying to hold the fort at about uh, no, no real growth, but at least co covering inflation. Uh, it's a classic battle, and uh, hopefully the Defense Department will win, as it has very often in the past. Dove Zakheim, thanks very much, as always. Thank you for having me. You can find a link to the Zakheim McCusker piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, turning risk data into climate action. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the Pentagon can shift from talking about climate change to confronting it. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's at govmatters.tv. Welcome back. The Pentagon's climate risk analysis is supposed to be out soon. The department says it will have implications for the national defense strategy. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is also starting a climate working group to uh, confront climate change. Lachlan Carey is an associate fellow in the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and writing about climate along with Samuel Brannon and Sarah Ladislaw and War on the Rocks. Lachlan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You get in this piece that you and your colleagues write at the problem. How do we translate things like working groups into stuff that actually happens and not stuff that people just talk about? 
Yeah, it's a really tough question. And what we focused on was what you know the national intelligence intelligence community calls tr uh, structured analytic techniques. And these were first sort of uh, popularized in the the wake of the the Iraq War and the intelligence failures uh, that that happened with that and the discovery of or not discovery of uh, weapons of mass destruction. And so what this does is sort of address the cognitive biases that I think really hold back the DOD and, and uh, other actors in thinking about climate change and the long-term risks uh, that it presents to our national security. And so what we, we ran was a what-if scenario uh, based in 2030 um, when the world essentially faces a Dust Bowl 2.0, a once-in-1,000-year drought. There are 300 million displaced persons, two million of whom are on the southern border. And so how do we get to that position and what are the steps that need to be taken between now and 2030 to avoid it? What is the Defense Department's role in mitigating climate changes? Is, it, uh, is there something beyond the scope of ensuring that it, it, its own climate footprint is within reason is, or is there something broader that the department should be doing? Yeah, look, honestly, I think the department's footprint is, is something of a distraction. I mean, just as you and I, uh, you know, we, we can only uh, emit so much as the tools at our disposal. You know, I can't afford an, an electric vehicle in the same way I, I don't think the Department of Defense can suddenly afford to switch to electric tanks and, and fighter jets. So what it can do, however, is really invest in technological innovation and deployment of, of those new technologies. I mean, you could imagine if the DOD committed to putting money behind research and development into electric fighter jets or, or, or naval ships. I mean, these are areas where we're drastically behind where the technology needs to be in order to uh, in, in order to reach our climate goals. Other areas where I think the DOD could really step up is in depoliticizing and prioritizing the issue among the American public. I mean, Republican support for climate change action and belief in climate change as uh, a man-made issue is at an all-time low. Just when we need to be acting, uh, you know, uh, as if it's as if it's a crisis. The U.S. military remains the most trusted institution in the United States, and I think it should really lean into that. And you're starting to see the Biden administration take the necessary steps. Secretary Lloyd Austin has has made a number of really positive comments about climate change, and I think that could make a make a real difference. You and your colleagues write in this piece, the two key challenges to climate action at the Defense Department are the complexity of accurately modeling future risks and the deteriorated state of the department's strategic foresight capabilities. You addressed the first issue, the modeling future risks a moment ago. What has to happen? Who, who needs what skill sets in order to build back that, uh, that assessment capability that you're talking about? Well, I think one lesson we really learned in this exercise is that no one has the whole skill set. No one is an expert in every issue that touches on climate change because climate change touches on every issue. And so what we really need here is a whole of government approach. The DOD needs to work with the State Department, with USAID in particular, but also the Department of Energy and many others. You know, the expertise throughout the, the US federal government is spectacular and it should really take advantage of that. But uh, in saying that, there are very specific national security concerns, and, and I think the, the department could step up its investment in the human capital uh, and the risk analysis tools that would take to really uh, sort of uh, make the most of, uh, of that expertise. You write in this piece, climate action at the Defense Department could become mired in its bureaucracy's underperforming strategic foresight process, and you lay out some of the possibilities that that could happen. What steps would, do you think would prevent that from happening? What would stop that 
from happening to fulfill the vision that you're describing? Well, I think, as you mentioned, you're really taking seriously this climate change working group, uh, you know, is a really positive step forward. The climate risk analysis, which is due in 120 days, you know, that's taken seriously and then um, made a, a real priority within the administration and also with the public. I think sensitizing the public to the fact that climate change is a national security issue and to oppose climate action, I think, is really to invite further threats to the peace and security of America and its peoples. And so uh, I think, you know, the tools are in place. The next step is really to, to move beyond the sort of short-term thinking that typically takes place when one thinks about climate change. You see a lot about sea level rise in Virginia and how this might affect military installations. And yes, this is an extremely important issue, but what it happens, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now, these are much harder questions uh, to address. What, how does it affect the relationship with our allies, the broader geopolitical environment? What about the energy transition? What happens to the Middle East when oil demand plummets? This wasn't exactly an area known for uh, peace and stability beforehand. What happens when you take the oil revenue away? Um, you only need to look uh, at the solar industry to see how the clean energy transition is changing the, the geopolitical environment. You know, 45% of uh, the global supply of polysilicon uh, for solar, solar panels is manufactured in Xinjiang. And of course, this is this is raising all sorts of tensions, you know, between uh, the U.S. and China already. And as more and more of our energy comes from these sources, we're going to see that environment around energy security and the geopolitics of securing our energy of our energy future change quite dramatically. Lachlan Carey, thanks very much for joining me. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Francis. You can find a link to that piece at govmatters.tv/resources. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show. It's on our website, too. You get a preview of every newscast when you sign up for our daily program guide. Just text GovMatters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes about how government can use software-defined wide-area networks to deliver the best digital experience for constituents and staff. Government agencies are continuing the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions Vehicle, EIS, for telecom-related services. Industry experts are calling on agencies to use it for citizen-facing government. Tony Bardo is here. He's Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes Network Solutions. Tony, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. What does the EIS vehicle provide for agencies to make these kinds of transitions, to do the network modernization that they need to do? It's a great question, uh, as you always do lead off with, uh, Francis, and it's good to see you, talk to you again. But uh, here's, 
it, it's more interesting really to talk about what it hasn't uh, delivered yet. And uh, GSA fa faced an interesting conundrum when they were uh, putting EIS together and it was necessary to do so and they had the right vision for it and the right ideas to bring in some new blood and new new vendors and new kinds of companies. But the the services available to to the government at the time were still the same services that have been around for 20 years. Um, and that is the the MPLS network um, services that worked during the end of FTS 2001 and throughout the networks contract. So um, the, the, the new services, the new modern services were just emerging. These are the new SD-WAN, the managed broadband services. And these are the kinds of services that are better equipped for handling the large surge and surges of bandwidth demand for the agencies, particularly at the edge. So what was what the agencies were sort of presented with was, here's a new contract and it's got a new timetable and it's got a new scope of work and a new span of work and a new body of, 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 uh, of a performance period, but it didn't really have the new services that met the goal or the, the mantra of transforming. So what we saw in some of the early um, fair opportunities that uh, that the agencies were issuing, and it really took them a long time to start issuing them, um, but they 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 were basically asking for like for like services, and that wasn't really a a plan for transforming, and it didn't. The, many of the fair opportunities, unfortunately, did not show the the vision for transforming. SD-WAN was emerging, so it was a tough call. It was a, you know, we've got to get this contract, new contract out, because the old contract is aging, it's expiring, it's got its uh, limited time frame. So it was an interesting, um, you ask an interesting question. It, it, the platform really wasn't ready there to, to, uh, to transform and leap into transformation and modernization. It's starting to happen, though. You uh, gave me a term before we started recording, and I want, to tell, want you to tell me what it means and why it's important. Managed service provider, why does that matter to agencies and, and why is that concept helpful to them in these transitions, Tony? The concept, concept is really helpful because the, the, pro, the providers and the services and managing them um, makes it easier for the agencies. These, these agency telecom managers have really got it tough. They 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 have this they have this contract that they were uh, compelled to use and and encouraged to use, and they wanted to modernize. Uh, they're running their own networks today every day. They have to issue these fair opportunities to compete the business among the uh, providers, the the prime uh, contractors on EIS. And they've got to do it all at the same time and all with the same workload and workforce that they that they have. So these are really, really tough. Getting obtaining managed services takes the burden off of the limited staffs of the agencies and lets the lets the um, service providers do the work. So managed service providers can then um, 
offer these services, manage the networks, manage the uh, security aspects of the networks, manage the routing of the traffic on the networks through the modern architectures of broadband, managed broadband, and managed SD-WAN. Tony, there's always more great ideas to talk about than there is time to talk about them. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much. Thank you, Francis. Take care.